Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host, George Smith, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined this Monday lunchtime by Samuel Luckhurst and Tyrone Marshall. Samuel, first of all, how are you? Very well, thank you, George. How are you? I'm not bad at all, thank you. Glad to hear all is well at your end. And Ty, how about yourself? Yes, good. Thank you, George. Good. Looking forward to some football resuming this week. It feels about 15 minutes since the season ended, but uh, but here we go again. Yeah, definitely batteries recharged and the start is upon us yet again. But uh, as you say there, we are only two days away now from United's first pre-season friendly. They've got that trip to Norway on Wednesday to face Leeds United. And it could mark uh, the beginning of a memorable season for some of United's younger players. At the MEN, we are inviting you to have your say on which United youngsters you believe will have a memorable 2023-24 campaign. But before we touch on that later on, there is only one place to start this Monday lunchtime. And that is, of course, with the big news that broke on Saturday afternoon with the exit of David De Gea. After 12 years and 545 games in United Colours, his time at Old Trafford is finally up. It is the end of an era. Samuel, first of all, obviously, it was the headline news over the weekend. What, what did you make to it? It was it was inevitable. Uh, it should have been announced a week before, really, when his contract expired. It, United should have been more decisive in the way they went about it. Ty was right with his piece and that they they made the right decision, but went about it in the wrong way. And I suppose it was kind of in keeping with the way it was handled that a few minutes after De Gea confirmed that he was leaving United for good. Uh, a United staff member uh, suggested that we should prepare ourselves for something on, on David's channels when the message, the word was already out. De Gea had already posted that update. So uh, United will look back on that and think we, we could have we could have dealt with it better. But football doesn't work that way. Uh, Bruno Fernandes said that, you know, I think a lot of people would agree with him that De Gea deserved to have a formal send-off. But again, those those farewells, they very rarely happen. Ryan Giggs, when he played United for the last time, he was player-manager, probably the club's, well, certainly the club's most decorated player, uh, most successful player, most appearances. But it wasn't put out beforehand that he was definitely leaving. Uh, you don't always get a North Korean-style send-off like Sir Alex Ferguson did with 70,000 red, red flags being waved. Steve Bruce, Brian Robson, Yap Stam, David Beckham, Roy Keane—you know the list goes on of players who've left somewhat abruptly or or under a cloud. And also, would it have been the right thing to do in in terms of preparation for the FA Cup final? That's that's another questionable. Um, you know, that's that's something else to question. But ultimately, De Gea didn't get the send off that he probably would have liked. And unfortunately, his his United career is is bookended by. Mistakes against Manchester City at Wembley, the, the 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 last one obviously being particularly costly in that FA Cup final, but it, it doesn't paint a, a fair picture whatsoever of what was a great career at the club. And United did extremely well to get 12 years out of him. It looked like they were only going to have him for four years because he did want to join Real Madrid in 2015. So to have kept him for three times as long as that uh, is, is some going. He was world-class between, I'd say, between 2013 and to 2018 or 20 going into 2019, I don't think there was a better goalkeeper in the world. I'm sure Manuel Neuer acolytes would say that he was he was a better goalkeeper, but Neuer, he did have the benefit of being in the comfort zone of the Bayern Munich penalty area where he wasn't particularly busy or certainly not as busy as De Gea was. And De Gea was a very busy goalkeeper for, for much of his time at United. And I don't think I've ever seen a goalkeeper... Um, astound with the saves he made he would save he would save goals when the ball was literally past him and and that did happen a few times in his career and it's very very difficult to uh, whittle down a list of his of his best of really if if they wanted to release a dvd of it it would probably be longer than the godfather because there were so many great saves during his time at united and that's what he'll be remembered for it's it's a pity for him that he he Certainly played a, a lot longer for the club than Peter Schmeichel or Edwin van der Sar did, but he never had the benefit of playing behind um, as good as defences as, as they did. Van der Sar in particular played behind three world-class defenders for much of his time at United in Everett, Ferdinand and Vidic. Uh, Schmeichel 
okay United good defensive side though they were and they had some brilliant defenders but you wouldn't have necessarily said they were they had as high ceilings as Fernand Vidic did but Schmeichel played in well possibly the best United side of all time a lot of people would say the 93-94 team uh, was actually a better team than the treble winning team he, he ultimately played in probably the two best United sides they've ever been so you're not always going to be uh, as, as busy as, as De Gea was and I suppose the one little pang of regret for De Gea might be that when he came to United Fernand and Vidic they, they were starting to creak and there were signs of wear and tear there and he never really played behind consistently great defenders during his time and just at the point where they got a partnership which in Varane and Martinez is the best since Fernand and Vidic his limitations were so renowned that United really had to move him on and they should have been more decisive about it I don't think Ten Hag should have been as um, I mean there was a lot of face saving going on in public where he kept on repeatedly saying I want to keep De Gea he said it often enough that I don't think he was lying but there was definitely a shift towards the end of the season. And even when United won very handsomely against Real Betis, one of the biggest takeaways from the evening was just how bad De Gea's kicking was and how problematic it was. And even in Ten Hag's final press conference of the season at Wembley, uh, in, in that grand lecture-like uh, theatre room at the National Stadium, the last question centred on De Gea's kicking, and he, he admitted it was an issue. And here we are five or six weeks later and De Gea is no longer United player and he's not going to play for United again. So the right decision has been made. Uh, it's it's not, I don't think it's as ruthless as some have suggested it as, I mean, ultimately United were trying to get him tied down on a new contract. So that immediately undermines the, the ruthlessness of it. But they have made the right decision because... I mean, as as I wrote at the weekend in, in in the feature on De Gea's time at United, that was a decision two years in the making. The previous permanent manager wanted uh, to to phase out De Gea two years ago, and his goalkeeping was an issue back then. It was a goalkeeper. It, it was an issue. Sorry, um, going back three or four years. I mean, he he had a much worse running in twenty eighteen nineteen, and then he got a new contract in the summer, and you just wondered if history was going to repeat itself, but the setup at United and certainly the manager uh, is is a lot more ruthless even though as I said it, it is undermined by the, the club's wish and an attempt to, to tie De Gea down on a new contract Yeah definitely and it does you know it feels like there has been a changing of the goalposts in the way the situation changed but as Samuel outlined very well there Ty it does feel like the right decision has been made at the right juncture for United as a whole to move forward and for Eric Ten Hag to move to this second phase of, you know, his, his, his rebuilding project, if you like. So I think it is a case of 100% the decision has been made at the right time, even though they could have probably handled it a little bit better, as Samuel said. Yeah, I, I think so, you know. Um, I mean, if they, if they start next season with Andre Nana in goal ahead of, and, and De Gea's gone, which obviously he is now, then you'd have to say, by, by hook or by crook, they're, they're going to have upgraded that area of the pitch and got a goalkeeper who fits a lot better. Um, it, it doesn't seem that that's necessarily been a strategy that's been lined up for a long time. Maybe there's a little bit of opportunism in the in Anana, but you know, Inter Milan's financial issues aren't a surprise to anyone, and his performance in the Champions League final won't have swung it. Ten Hag worked with him for years at, at Ajax, so it, it is it is an upgrade in the right area of the pitch. It's not been handled brilliantly, and you know, regardless of the whole De Gea thing, and, and Simon's right that. There still wouldn't have been a great time for a farewell because the last game's the cup final and you obviously can't do it then. Maybe at least just knowing at Old Trafford against Fulham it was his final game, you know, might have been a, a, a nicer way to end it, certainly, than this. And not so much keeping him hanging on, but just the un, the uncertainty. But also just the this lack of a clear direction all year with, with the goalkeeping thing. Um, you know, it's, it's been pointed out a few times recently that the you know, maybe the tipping point was that FA Cup final performance, but you know, no serious football club is making a decision like that on the back of 90 minutes for a player who's been at the club for 12 years. And it was obvious on in the second game of the season on August the 13th that De Gea just wasn't a natural fit for Ten Hag's system. And they've, they've gone all year talking about a new contract, showing intent to keep him without ever really knowing if they wanted to keep him or not. And it it's just, like I say, it, it's, if, they, if they do get Anana, then it's going to work out for the better. But it's just—it's not been handled in a way you would expect of an elite football club. You know, you couldn't imagine Man—you couldn't imagine Man City or Liverpool 
in recent years going about things in in this way and it should work out okay for United but you know it, it does feel like there's an element of, of good fortune there and the reality is they've not signed Anana yet and for all the talk at the weekend of, of there needs to be a compromise on the fee something we're going to hear I think with every single deal this year why on earth would Inter Milan compromise when United's current number one has just announced on Twitter that he's off so it's not exactly strengthens United, strengthens United's hand when it comes to negotiating a smaller fee and as much as we're saying it's it's the right decision it, it's only the right decision if they get a better goalkeeper in to replace him and Anana would certainly be that but they've got to they've got to get that one over the line yet and I think I think we all expect it to get over the line I think all the indications are it, it will get over the line but yeah it's not it's not been handled brilliantly and it does feel like this decision could have been made two, three, four months ago. None of none of what's happening, none of this is a surprise. United knew all season De Gea wasn't a natural fit for Ten Hag's system. And they've they've just seemed unsure for a long time exactly what they wanted to do. And that's not you know, Samuel mentioned the word ruthlessness before. That's not the kind of decision making and clear minded decision making and clear logic you expect of a well-run football club. And I think United are a well-run football club now. I think they've improved immeasurably in, in recent years under John Murta, Richard Arnold as, as chief executive. I think things are definitely heading in the right direction. But this is another learning curve that just shows you've got to be, you know, you've got to be clear with what you want to do. And in the goalkeeping department this year, they've just not been clear. And you know, I think I mentioned it last week in, basically in the space of a month in June, they managed to make all three goalkeepers they've got unhappy. And that's just, that's, you know, a pretty disastrous way of, of going about things. And the situation's still not particularly clear because they're still talking about Dean Henderson being an option as number one next season. I don't I don't think that's realistic. Um, they're still saying we need to talk to Dean Henderson to see if he wants to stay or go. He wants to go. Um, you know, it's just a bit of a, uh, a mess, really. And come the first day of the season, if Anana's in goal, if Heaton's the number three, and if they've got a you know, a younger number two, then they'll probably look at it and think that's a success. But the the way they've got there won't have been been brilliant. Will it matter in the end if it is if it is that that sets up? Probably not. But it does feel like lessons need to be learned in terms of just you know being being ruthless with your decision making and being clear and coherent with your decision making rather than just dragging things out. And even the manner to which they've been dragged out since last week, like Samuel said. You know the 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 word last week from the club was he's going to get married. Then we're going to hold more face to face talks. But oh, was there ever really a thought that that was going to that was going to change anything? It's just just seems to have unnecessarily dragged on for for a lot longer than it really needed to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if a decision had been reached by that point, you wouldn't have thought there was any you know further talks to take place to try and reach an agreement. But there we go. Obviously, David de Gea has moved on, but. To reflect on him in a, in a positive light is obviously his United career. He achieved, you know, over 500 games for the club. It's a tremendous achievement for any player in any era. Samuel, what what are probably your fondest memories of watching David De Gea in a United shirt over the last few years? Uh, f- fondest memories is probably the the, the wrong um, way way to phrase it because we're obviously we're, where we're working the press box. It's you're being professional. You you're working on the games, and ultimately you've you're reacting to to what you see. I mean, as I said, I have been I've been genuinely astounded watching uh, some of the De Gea saves at times, and probably the, uh, the 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 game at Arsenal just for Christmas in 2017 where he made I think I think it was a thir- 13 saves. And there was one where, like I said, at the shot, and he somehow stopped Sanchez's on the rebound. But there was a, I thought the the save in the first half from Lukaku. It was actually Lukaku rather clumsily tried to clear the ball, and it was actually going in his own net. Was was probably a better save in the again the as I said earlier, the ball was passed to Haya, yet he had the agility back then to always somehow claw the ball away and. He did it as early as his second season. I remember, save from Fernando Torres at Stamford Bridge, and I mean, a lot of fans they always talk about the matter free kick, uh, which was in his first season. It was probably his first turning point at United because he was up until that point he was looking like a bit of a flop. There was some potential, and he was made, he had made some good saves, but he was having a tough time. But he'd, he'd recently been outright dropped by Ferguson. 
And then he made that save from Matos free kick, which I think United were 3-0 down. They got it back to 3-3. Absolute humdinger of a game. Then Matos had that free kick and that would have won the game for Chelsea. But that was not his best save. And sometimes the, the finest saves are by the finest of touches. I remember one he made from... Uh, Brian Ruiz at Fulham in his second season and the touch on it was so fine the replay had to really slow down the slow motion to see that he'd got a glove on it it was almost as if you needed the hotspot technology that used to exist in cricket to confirm he'd got a touch onto it but he did and it went onto the post and that was at nil nil United won one nil I think City dropped points that weekend and their lead stretched uh, to something like 12 points maybe and and that was the last time that, that was the last season they won the league and those when you when you're judging his greatest saves you do have to take into the the context of the importance of them like whether this has won a match i think he got the save of the season once in 2013-14 from for this brilliant save from luis suarez and i didn't mention it in my piece of the weekend because that game is known as one of is known as one of the um, last nails in the coffin of David Moyes because Liverpool thrashed United 3-0 at, at Old Trafford and Moyes had said going into it Liverpool were the favourites to win at Old Trafford so as, as brilliant a save as it was it didn't count for a great deal and so I always think of that Ruiz one even though it's quite a long time ago and it's probably not one that people I think if you YouTubed it you might not even get uh, much of a, a result for it but that was that was such a huge huge save and also it was a turn that was the turning point for him at united because he'd made a couple of mistakes coming into it um gary neville had really uh, pretty much despaired his goalkeeping after he gifted clint dempsey an equalizer at tottenham and i think there was a goal that southampton scored where he was a bit of a soft touch going in for a challenge with jay rodriguez and this game at fulham um the floodlights went out and when uh, the, the floodlights came back on, De Gea came back out to warm up with Eric Steele. He had the United fans behind him and he was getting, it, it was his name just being chanted over and over again. So the backing for him was immense. And you felt that evening, that that was the, the real turning point that he made possibly his greatest save for the club. And also he had the, the ultimate litmus test, the United away dayers voicing um that they're backing for him and then i think it was just over a week later he had a brilliant performance in the bernabeu of all places in in a, in a brilliant game between madrid and united where he again it was the finest of touches on a fabio quintrao shot that he turned onto the post and he back then he was the only goalkeeper in the world who could make those saves because he wasn't as strongly built as neuer neuer was an extremely imposing goalkeeper but I remember Eric Steele, who was the goal De Gea's first goalkeeping coach at United, he said that they didn't want him to put on too much weight because they didn't want to compromise his agility. They noticed that his agility was possibly his biggest strength or one of his biggest strengths. So it was a case of maybe putting a stone of weight on, but ensuring that he could move across his line really quickly. And that served him exceptionally well for a good five or six year period of his United career and like you can just trot off all the names of players who, you know, De Gea would make a save and it just beggared belief. Um, that There was one up at Sunland from Jacarini, uh, the Aguero save in the comeback derby when United had made it 3-2 and he somehow clawed that away. There was one from Joel Matip on the line against Liverpool. Uh, you know the, the list goes on. Even as a, recently as this year, was it um, Edouard up at, uh, against Crystal Palace? That was possibly the save of the season. When again he's got the finest of touch, and it's uh, again it's another. You can always say it's a really great save when he's tipped it onto the woodwork because that's how difficult it is. That you get that finest of touch, and okay, you some would argue that you need the aid of the woodwork for the ball to not go in. But I think that's another sign of just what a great save it is. And he still had that in his locker as recently as, as this year. So yeah, you could talk you could dedicate a whole podcast going over the, the great saves De Gea made. And in, in some ways it's it's a bit of a pity for his United career that his United career will be remembered more for all these great saves he made rather than the trophies he won because what was it he won? He won a Premier League title, FA Cup, a couple of League Cups. Uh, Europa League uh, it's you know it's a pretty underwhelming return for, for 12 years as a Manchester United goalkeeper when Van der Sar was there half that time and he 
he must have won as many trophies in 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 two seasons probably back to back in 2008 uh, 2007 8 2008 9 possibly so he certainly deserved more Dyer but undeniably a, a United legend and uh, I, I hope for his sake and the club's sake that he he makes a, a reasonably swift return to to watch a game at Old Trafford but as I said earlier it doesn't always work out that way no, definitely not. Eight trophies in totally one, including three community shields. And, and Ty, of course, it means he was the, you know, there's no members left of United's last Premier League winning team now. that They've all gone, they've all exited. It does feel like the, the end of an era. So uh, where, where do you stand on it all with, with De Gea? Obviously, it feels like it's come to a, a natural conclusion. But at the same time, there's there's an element of sadness, I suppose, that it has ended in this way. Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I think clearly deserved that that better sending off, uh, better send off. I mean, twelve years for for one league title is is incredibly unfortunate as well. In a way, he had those four Player of the Year awards, but he was winning Player of the Year awards in seasons where United were disastrous generally because he was getting a lot of practice. And we, we said before, he's I think he's seventh on the list of all time appearances. I mean, everyone above him won more than he did. To have to have signed for United twelve years ago, we'd have been astonished to be told then it only ever win one league title. Um, but it just shows how how standards have fallen and and how difficult things have have become. Really, that he spent you know he spent his his time at Old Trafford stopping things from getting worse, basically stopping things from really getting out of hand. So many of those seasons and those dreadful seasons have been bad, but have ended with fans thinking, well, but for David, it could have been worse when. Obviously, that's not really what uh, what he wants to be associated with. But yeah, you know, there's there's a I suppose there's an element of sadness when when a long standing player like that and a long serving player leaves a club. But it does, you know, it does feel like the right time. It does feel like it's time to to move on. Um, it is him and him and Phil Jones, of course, the last link to to 2012-13. No one now in this team that's won a title at United. But you know, given it's ten years, we shouldn't really be surprised at at that and in reality it you know it doesn't really mean anything it's not like De Gea's understanding of what it takes to win a trophy at United or a title at United was was seeping into the rest of the squad I think we've seen in recent years that it made little difference um so you know it, it was just time to to cut the ties I mean it'll be interesting to see where he where he ends up I'm sure there's a queue of clubs in in Saudi Arabia after him um he does feel like a bit of a an, an, an anachronism now in in Europe in terms of a goalkeeper and, and what teams expect from a goalkeeper so it will be um, it will be interesting to see where he ends up because you can't imagine there's many elite clubs in Europe looking at him thinking he's a, he's a viable number one which probably shows United were were right to make the call they have done I remember when uh, Phil Jones signed his infamous contract in 2019 and Solskjaer being Solskjaer said he knows what it takes to win things at this club and I was thinking when they won the title he he missed a huge chunk of it through injury of course I think almost a third of his starts were after they they won the title he didn't play any games in the FA Cup uh, run in 2016 he wasn't in the final for the 2017 League Cup final I think he played about twice in the Europa League uh, run which was out of God knows 100 games whatever it is it takes to win the Europa League so at least standards have changed at United for the uh, for the better in terms of sentiment anyway yeah definitely and that uh, that brings an end to part one of this Manchester is Red podcast but before we do move on just worth mentioning that we are currently working on a video where you can look back on the 2012-13 title winning team and look at where they are now so make sure you check that out when it's live we'll be back in part two in a couple of moments time to look at the very latest on the transfer front Welcome back to part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. As I said a couple of moments ago, we're now going to look at the state of play in regards to transfers. The wind obviously alive and kicking now. United getting their first signing of the summer across the line last week, bringing in Mason Mount. Uh, as Ty's mentioned earlier on, Samuel Andre Onana is the one that United are seemingly working on, you know, with all of their energy now to replace David De Gea. You've been across this story quite a lot, certainly over the weekend, revealing that John Murta has been in Italy in discussions with uh, Inter Milan. What's the latest on that that you can bring us? Well, he's he's the principal target, and those the, the last word from United was that there'd have to be a compromise on a fee, which, as Ty said earlier, is 
probably the case with every transfer negotiation that that goes on, not necessarily just those involving United. United don't want to just nail their colours to one mast in case uh, something collapses there. But Inter's finances are in disarray. United are pretty much guaranteed 20 to 30 million pounds for a goalkeeper if if they don't drop the ball with Dean Henderson uh I mean the the suggestion still it's, it's clearly for face saving from United's perspective but the suggestion that Henderson is an option is just laughable uh when I mentioned that you know to an agency source uh, contact that that United said Henderson is an option they said yeah he is for another club uh I would be staggered if if Henderson plays another competitive game for United. I mean, what must he think? De Gea's gone. It's but it's, everyone that knows that this isn't Dean Henderson's chance to to take his place because United are actively trying to bring in a replacement for De Gea, and and that replacement is not going to be someone uh, to to sit on the bench. So. I wrote last week, really, in a, in a piece that there was a clear plan to get Anana in. You let the two goalkeepers go. You clear nearly four hundred grand off the wage bill. You bank a fee of around thirty million pounds for a goalkeeper. You reinvest it into signing the new goalkeeper. And Ty made a very good point earlier about that their bargaining position being weakened by De Gea clearly deciding that look, I'm not going to get a new contract here. We'll go off and do something else. And cutting the cord and confirming once and for all he is gone. So United do not have an an out-and-out number one at the moment, however way they might uh, phrase it or frame it or try and spin it. They they don't have a a starting number one goalkeeper. The the closest they've got to that is someone who has not played for the club um, in, in the Premier League since May 2021, spent last season on loan and wants to leave and people at United have been talking about the probability of, of Dean Henderson being sold as well. So it, something bad, something drastically wrong would have to occur for them not to sign Anana because they've clearly he's their main target. He's a worthy replacement for De Gea. Uh, he, he ticks all the boxes that, that Ten Hag wants from a goalkeeper. Ten Hag knows him. I think Ten Hag's got you know, sufficient or adequate credits in the bank to go for another player who is familiar to him. I don't think you've got many United fans or, or punters out there um, questioning the wisdom of, of going for a Nana either. So there, there's the feeling at United is is, is of uh, optimism that Anana will come in and, and become their their goal their, their next number one goalkeeper. Uh, so the outlook on it at the moment it's you know it, it looks pretty positive for them. It just depends on the fee and those things can take time. It took a little bit of time with Mason Mount. One week it was looking. United were sounding pessimistic about doing a deal the next week he'd signed that's how things how quickly things can change and uh, as, as we've said before every cough and spit of these of these situations gets covered ad nauseum these days so at this juncture I, I, I don't think it's um, if you're a United fan and your happiness hinges on transfers one it shouldn't but two I, I don't think that it's, it's there's going to be much of an issue with Anana. Um, he wants it to happen. Inter need the money. United want the player. As I said, something drastically wrong would have to occur for that for that not to, for that deal not to go through. Certainly sounds promising. And, and Ty obviously Samuel's mentioned there he ticks a lot of boxes for what Eric Ten Hag wants in his you know his first choice shot stopper. Obviously excellent with his feet. Twenty seven years of age, a good age for a goalkeeper. Obviously coming into their prime at this sort of age. So. Realistically, United could get quite a few years out of him if the move works out well. And obviously, of course, they do get it over the line. Yeah, absolutely. You can envisage him being number one for six, seven years, at least, you would have thought. Um, you know, he does He does tick an awful lot of boxes. Ten Hag knows exactly what he's getting. And Arna played 145 games for Ajax when Ten Hag was manager. So, um, his it, stylistically, we, we can know for certain that he's going to be a good fit. He's very, very comfortable with the ball at his feet. I would say I, I wrote in a piece of the weekend. He's, he's confident, bordering on cocky. I would say with the ball at his feet, and we know that. You know, I think English crowds are, are still getting used to goalkeepers taking risks and, and playing out, playing it out from the back. You see it so often. I think it was, I think it was United versus Arsenal last year when, um, which is incredible to think when this season Arsenal had. But every time Ramsdale was playing it short, the Arsenal fans in the way end were 
apoplectic with rage, basically, and fear at what was going to go wrong. And you do see that a lot. And when United did it, certainly under Solskjaer, I remember United trying to do it a little bit under Solskjaer with De Gea, Lindelof and Maguire. And, and that was certainly um, something you had to, to watch through your fingers, those three trying to trying to play out from the back. But the, the, the first choice central defenders, Martinez should thrive under this. That, that clip against Betis went viral of him taking a pass from De Gea and, and sort of running through three players pressing pressing him um but yeah it might take some getting used to that there is going to be a lot of short passing out from the back now with the intention of of luring opponents on and, and then playing through them but Anana is is good at that sort of stuff I, I thought he was great with the ball um in the Champions League final I think I've said a couple of times now on on the podcast I and mean, I was at that Champions League final covering it and went into a looking for a goal in injury time Anana was playing um, playing in front of two defenders, basically, they, he was more trusted to provide the the pass that might open the game up than than either of two inter two either than two of inter centre backs, and Anana was more advanced on them. So he is, you know, he's arguably as good as anyone with the ball at his feet in in world football, and stylistically, he does look to be a a perfect fit. And it's you know, it's another example of of Ten Hag signing a player he's familiar with. But I think we can all accept that this is. And an obvious deal to do, given that he is such a a natural fit for for what he wants from a goalkeeper, and a huge, you know, one of the biggest things is going to be, and why probably his signing needs to happen sooner rather than later. That it is going to be a, a significant change. There was a lot of compromise stylistically last year with De Gea um, mixing it up certainly and often going along. That's not going to be the case with Anana, and it will take the defence and, and the deeper midfielders a bit of time to to get comfortable with that and accustomed to that so the earlier he's in in pre-season you know ideally it's done before they go on tour next week then it does give everyone time to to get used to that new style yeah definitely it's a big change to try and obviously implement but Samuel you were across another transfer tail over the weekend when you reported on Saturday that Eric Ten Hag wants a second forward uh, in addition to the main striker target that they've wanted so far this summer um, for me personally I've looked at this situation quite a lot this summer thinking that if in the event of Anthony Martial going and United do get that new striker, they'd still need somebody else to provide support and competition. But the forward you've, you've mentioned in your report of the weekend was kind of a forward who can play anywhere across the front line, maybe somebody like a Joao Felix, somebody like that who can operate as a 10, perhaps out wide. So it seems like, you know, there's very specific criteria United are going to have to try and hit on this one as well. I would be worried for United's um, fortunes next season if they ended up with with Joao Felix, uh, given the, the given his situation at Atletico Madrid, how it went at Chelsea, uh, the, the the loan fee that was touted. Uh, yeah, I, if something bad would have would have to happen for United to go down down that route. Um, Again, this mainly this hinges on outgoings, and you are talking plural, and it might not even just be at two. You, you look at United's attacking department; there are a lot of options there. There are five players who can play from the left wing, five right-footed left wingers, arguably, if you to include Martial and. I think it's fair to say that he's played his best football for United from from the left wing. It was a long time ago, but that that remains the case. Rashford is the main choice. Garnacho is the next in line. Sancho is probably third in line, as as poor as he's been during his time at the club. Anthony Alanga is still an option, even though if United get an acceptable fee for him, he'll be on his way. Um, you look on the other side; they've they've not. They're not as well stocked and there's still, you can't say with absolute certainty that Ahmad will be in the first team squad next season. I think it's, I think it'd be the right thing to do unless he's utterly, utterly hopeless on the pre-season tour. But I don't think, I don't think he will be. And the the point you made, George, about the, the strike situation is the relevant one because as, as strange as it seems with someone so brittle and so ineffectual, but it's it, there is some sense in retaining Marshall just as a backup striker because they're going to get a striker in. Uh, if it's Hoyland, that that's a huge burden to shoulder for a twenty-year-old who has spent one year in Italy and uh, not not long ago was playing in Austria with Sturm Graz to to have to you know, lead the front line for for Manchester United. And I'm not saying Marshall is the uh, is the mentor to ease him in, but he is certainly a lot more experienced, and that might be the way of getting some use out of him if he is fit. Because who who out there is going to pay 
what, 30 million for, for, for Anthony Martial. He's, he can't be worth any more than that. He's, he's into the last year of his contract, technically. There is a plus one option, but when you factor in his form and his fitness uh, in, in the last three years, you're looking at 30 million tops. You're thinking, the more you think about it, you think, Actually, United would do extremely well to get thirty million for him. Um, the, the the number ten situation is a lot more. It, I think I think Ten Hag will be a lot more comfortable with it because if if Fernandez were to succumb to injury and he never has at United, which is an extraordinary run, then you have got Mount there who can step up. Even though Mount, we all expect him to be pl- operating from deep, operating more of a central midfielder. He said himself, he sees himself as a number eight. Fernandez wears the eight, but he is the ten in that team. And of course, if if a club were to come in with a good offer for Donny Van Der Beek, uh, you would be certifiable to say to reject that he's he's someone who's been at United for three years he couldn't hack it at Everton in the Premier League never mind at United Peeps, Van, Van der Beek is not sure of uh, some of fans online but that's again as I said earlier in terms of litmus tests of uh, you know what's what's a reliable litmus test it, it's not it's not Twitter opinion Van der Beek's been a flop at United he's not good enough for United I'd argue that his agent should be trying to get him back to Ajax because it would mean that he'd be playing regularly and he'd be playing in the Netherlands head of a European Championship. He's he's not been in the Dutch squad for the last two years and um, when it was the last Euros, he didn't participate in that due to injury. So he's actually had a pretty torrid time of it at international level even for, for two years. And with United, it's been a torrid few years with them. So you'd think Van der Beek, Elanga, um, Sancho, Ten Hag has become extremely impatient with and, and even snapped at him during the, the FA Cup final and, and justifiably so because I thought Sancho was United's worst player in the final. He was dreadful, uh, very, very fortunate to have lasted as long as he did. So you look there, there are three or four players who could, should, might not be in the squad next season. But also you can see a scenario where they're all still at United uh, beyond the end of the transfer window. And in in the summer where they're talking about tight budgets, they're talking about FFP, that there have to be player sales and they've you know they've made a pretty slow start on that so far. There have been some departures, but they've been extremely low level. I mean, I don't think... Ethan Laird, the fee they've banked for him is is I mean that's a drop in the ocean really seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds or whatever it was, so they need to um, they need to get some big hitters or relative big hitters off the books if they're to to justify that. But the the, the interesting thing I was told was that Gakpo was seen as an option by Ten Hag, but not what they needed mid season. Ten Hag's agent Keys Voss, who also represents Cody Gakpo, was going to beat around the bush. And as soon as Liverpool came in, they thought, "Yeah, why not?" And I, I maintain Gakpo was needed a hell of a lot more uh, by Liverpool than United because of the the situation with their attack, where I think it was Luis Diaz and Diogo Jota were, were injured at the time, so they were light, and they they certainly needs a new option. And Roberto Firmino was it always looked like he was going to go. He has gone. But the the point I think that Ten Hag tried to make in a, an interview with the, uh, Henry Winter towards the end of the season was that the other clubs invested in January and United didn't. So he's always gotten out with the Valt Weghorst experiment, which was an absolute disaster. No two ways about it. Uh, Ten Hag will always say, well, you know, he, he played a long run of games only because Martial was injured and he did at least help Rashford, you know, Rashford offset the issue there because he was in good form and he did serve a purpose. But two goals and 31 appearances is is dire. That That is a failure. And Ten Hag will say, well, I had to get someone in on loan. And there, were very, there was a very small pool of... Uh, strikers available in in the loan market at that time who who would have been fit enough to play as as often as as was required at United and United did have a very busy schedule and in fairness to Vekhorst I don't don't think he was ever injured so he certainly looked after himself if you had a hybrid of Vekhorst and Martial you you might have a world beater but um, that that's certainly not not the case and and United is still as it stands they're still trying to get a striker in never mind a, a second forward so I'd have some doubts about that but a lot there's still a lot of time in the transfer window and a lot can happen this time last year I don't think any of us would have envisaged James Garner being sold by United but 
they had to sell him because they needed some funds of some sort and he was probably the only uh, sellable asset uh, who who they could get rid of and that was by virtue of him not not being tainted by the previous season under Solskjaer and Rangnick. Yeah, definitely. And just sticking with you as well, Sam, you did a story this morning on Harry Maguire. Obviously, um, he's another player that's under threat of be, you know being sold this summer. But United have, according to yourself, have set a value of around £50 million pounds, uh, to possibly let him go. Highly unlikely that anybody's going to be willing to pay that figure, I would have thought. Yeah, I thought uh, Ty had taken over as, uh, from, from John Murta because we had a rather amusing conversation coming back from the, the infamous Brentford game last season. And I think he, he, he listed Eric Bailly's valuation at, was it 20, was it 20 million? I think you said about twenty million. 20, I think, yeah, 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 twenty million pound player in there. Yeah, and then mm. uh, I think I think it was the following week. United said, <laughs> "Oh yeah, he could, you know, Marseille can sign him if he plays a number of appearances for six million euros or whatever it was." So, yeah, oh, uh, James Robson was also present for this trip and also scoffed at the twenty million fee. And yeah, I, you you can't help but scoff at fifty million for Harry Maguire. I think if you were to trim it by ten million and. You know, factoring add-ons into an overall forty million pound fee, I think that's reasonably fair. He's he's got the cash over being United captain, two years left in his contract. Uh, he's, he's an England regular still. I, I I certainly think he would enhance the majority of Premier League defenses. He's he's not good enough to be a starter in a successful or a credible United team, but he's comfortably good enough to play for uh, to to be a starter in most Premier League teams. But I mean that's that's fanciful. It's it's you know it's really fairy tale stuff that from United. I think their chance and their arm and again that word compromise that would have to come into it um, with with Maguire's fee uh, if 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 he is to ever leave. But just this notion that he he wants to hold talks with Ten Hag for clarification over his future. I mean read the writing on the wall. Sixteen starts last season. Eight of them were in cup games four players in that squad are ahead of him in the central defensive pecking order and one of them is is a left back by trade and um, that's not a slight on Luke Shaw either because he was brilliant in almost every game he played at centre half last season so you know Maguire for his own sake he's he's got to look for an exit route because Southgate has said as well he it can't go on like this ahead of the Euros next year and there is a little bit of competition starting to come through at centre-half with the under-21s doing so well winning the Euros Harwood Bellis and Levi Colwell have been have been name-checked by Southgate and he's started to talk up competition at centre-back but if Maguire's playing regularly next season which won't be the case at United bar a couple of significant injuries then you'd think he would start at the Euros alongside Stones yeah, definitely. He's never put a foot wrong in an England shirt, to be fair to him. But obviously, you know, you need to be playing Giroud's most winner. if you are going to represent your country. Was it Giroud's winner, maybe, for France? Was it, He was the marker, wasn't he, I think? Apart yeah. from that, but that was... Yeah, it reflected that, enough him. He was maybe half a yeah. yard behind him, wasn't he? But it was, it was all about yeah. Harry Kane's penalty miss. But, oh, he was, not he was world-class at the world, Euros. I thought he was... He, he did not put a foot wrong at the Euros. He was great. Him and Stones have been very, very yeah, good together. But uh, before we move on, um, just lastly on the transfer front, Ty, you've mentioned there, Eric Bailly, probably one of, you know, a collection of names within this squad that would be considered in the Deadwood category. Him, Alex Tellez, Brandon Williams, Van der Beek, even that all need moving on. Obviously, it's far easier said than done, but United, they do kind of, need, obviously they need, you know, they need interested parties, but they do need to try and speed up this process a little bit if they can to generate funds for, you know, future incomings as well, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. They could do with the um, kind of links with Saudi Arabia that Chelsea's owners have got, couldn't they? I think that would um, that would help things significantly, it would be fair to say. But even clubs in Saudi Arabia seem to have doubts about Eric Bailly and, and Alex Tellez. So, um, so yeah, they, they do need to, to speed up the outgoings process. I mean, again, they've you know, the, the, they're, they're lagging behind on this. It's always an area that they, they struggle with, um, which is, is kind of understandable. I think we touched on it on Friday's podcast about how the, the, you know, the only time United are ever looking to sell a player is because they've failed, basically. A, a club like United isn't going to sell a player unless, A, that player is forcing himself out or the player has flopped. And in most of these instances, the ones we've just mentioned, um, Van der Beek, Williams to a degree, I guess, but it, more of an academy graduate who is maybe never quite at the level. But certainly Van der Beek, Tellers and Bailly are three players who've just failed to cut the mustard at United. So... Finding a buyer for them isn't going to be easy. When on recent evidence, all they've all they've displayed is how they weren't good enough for this club. So, 
not not an easy thing to do. But yeah, they could do with moving some of the deadwood on for sure. Um, you know, that would make a difference to the size of the squad and also the budget that Tanaka has available. Yeah, definitely no pressure though coming attached with that one. But that uh, does conclude part two of this Manchester is Red podcast. We'll be back in part three to quickly look ahead to Wednesday's opening pre-season friend against Leeds United. Welcome back to part three of this Manchester is Red podcast. As I said a couple of moments ago, we are going to have a quick discussion now on Wednesday's pre-season opener against Leeds United in Oslo. Our colleague Rich Fay is flying out to Norway, I believe, tomorrow to cover that game. Samuel, I suppose the, the biggest takeaway from this game in all eyes, perhaps they're going to be on Mason Mount and probably not a lot else. I completely agree with you, George. Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased for Rich that there's a signing in so that there's something to write about uh, for, for this game because it's his piece will be on on Mount and, and rightly so. Uh, that's that's going to be the main takeaway. However, you know, how, however he performs and you just hope that, again, for Richie's sake, that, that Mount starts or he at least gets gets a half. Sometimes this happens in, in pre-season games that uh, there'll be a starting 11. Obviously, they they come off at half-time and then it's another 11 that come on for the second half. I think that's how Ten Hag operated in the first friendly in, in Bangkok against Liverpool last season. Liverpool, I think in that game, they, they made wholesale changes every 30 minutes, so that was a, a slight adjustment to that rule. But you would imagine that, given that, given Mount has trained with, with his new teammates, that he will, he will get at least a half and it, it would be illogical not to start him. You, you want to start as many players who... Will be lining up against uh, against Fulham. Sorry, not Fulham. I don't know why I've got Fulham on the mind. That that was the last that was la- the last game of last season. But Wolves. I think I think I just don't. I just hate Wolves Man United games. I, I, I can't be the only one. There've been too many of them. Uh, but you want as many players who, to start who are going to start that game. And Varane, Martinez certainly come into it. Wambasaka is probably in contention. Mount certainly. Um, Maybe maybe one or two others as well, uh, depending on on how the the next four or five weeks pan out. But it's United have got a pretty strong squad to take over there as well. Anthony's another. There, there are quite a few players coming back from injury who were in Carrington the week before preseason training officially started because they were still rehabilitating from from their layoffs. I thought it was. I mean, maybe he's doing ball work this week, but. I didn't see Anthony Marshall in any um, training footage or images with with a ball at his feet or du- during the ball sessions, and you know that that isn't really a surprise given how long he takes to recover from injuries, and he, he tore his hamstring uh, in, in the final game against Fulham. But again, that that again just stresses the need for a striker to come in as as quickly as possible. And if you're in United's position or if you're in Ten Hag's position, you'd ideally like one or two more in before they fly off uh, to to the United States. I think that's next Wednesday they fly off, but they go via Edinburgh because they they take in that game against Lyon. Uh, myself and Ty fly off uh, next next Tuesday, so it's all coming around very very quickly. But you, if you're a manager, you want as many important signings on your pre-season tour as possible and where there's not a summer tournament as well there aren't too many excuses for that not to be the case so uh, it needs to be quite a busy week for United in terms of of incomings with an eye on on that flight from Edinburgh to uh, to JFK or, or or it might be might even be Newark next week because they are going to be based in technically in New Jersey yeah definitely the clock is ticking for United to get things done on that front but as well as it being an important time for new signings, um, obviously it's an important time for some of the club's younger players to, you know, try and make the step up and try and catch the eye of the manager. And as I mentioned at the very start of this uh, podcast, we, we've uh, we've launched a new feature on the MAM website now where fans can go on there and they can vote for which youngsters they hope to see make the grade this forthcoming season uh, via an interactive widget that you can go and check out now. Ty, I suppose looking at the the younger pool of players that could be going to to the states with Eric Ten Hag and his senior players, I suppose all eyes most likely going to be on Ahmad. Obviously, he's going to be the the main one that people are going to be talking about. But I suppose there's obviously a a slight chance, perhaps, for Alvaro Fernandez to possibly force his way in as well. Yeah, he was the other name I I would have mentioned. Um, certainly, if a, a centre half leaves, if if Maguire was sold, I think they would need a replacement. But you could see a scenario where they use Luke Shaw more often as, as Martinez's backup and, and Lindelof as Varane's backup. So 
there is options within the squad there. That would mean a, a gap at left back. So, you know, that, that is a potential route in for Alvaro Fernandez. But I think Ahmad is the one that everyone's going to be keen to see how he gets on and, and how he does. Obviously fantastic at Sunderland last year. An unbelievable highlights reel from the championship. But this is a, another step up altogether. And as much as it's going to be about the friendlies, it, it's going to be what he does in training as well. The bits we're not seeing as to, to how he impresses Ten Hag. I mean, I've said it previously. I I, I wonder if the, the options available to United are, are going to be, or if, if Ten Hag is viewing it as he's a member of the first team squad or he's sold. Um, you know, he's he's been pretty ruthless, I think, with younger players so far with James Garner especially last year um, that it, it, with Garner I think he was he was a player everyone wanted to see in the squad and, and fans wanted to see in the squad Ten Hag decided he didn't have it at that point he wasn't of the level rather than send him on loan again cash in on him when his value is high and Ahmad's value is certainly high after what he did at, at Sunderland I would still lean towards seeing him involved in the squad but if Ten Hag did take a look at him this summer and decided he wasn't quite there you wonder whether he might be encouraging United to sell rather than have another loan and, and instead just sell while his while his stock is high. But you know, I think fans will be intrigued to see how he gets on. It it feels like there's an obvious gap in that squad for a right winger to compete um, with Anthony to be back up to Anthony. Sancho clearly doesn't like playing on the right, particularly. I think you know, Ten Hag said then the last season Sancho prefers it on the left, and he's not been good enough anyway. Um, Rashford did okay on the right when he played last year, but. His roles are off the left or at centre forward, really. So it, it does feel like there's a gap there for Ahmad to at least be Anthony's backup and, and getting enough games in a season. So, you know, I think he's the one with the most to, to win on um, on tour and, and in these finals, in these uh, friendlies, the most to gain for sure. But there's always a risk as well of reading too much into it, which is why I say that the stuff that happens behind closed doors in training is probably just as valuable because we all watched the friendlies last year and thought. Zidane Iqbal looked a real player in the making and as much as he did the, it can be easier to impress in the slow pace of, of friendly games they're played at a good tempo what we weren't seeing behind closed doors that the Telag and his coaches were was doubts about you know Zidane Iqbal's physicality and, and ability to make it in the Premier League and that's why it's it's very different what goes on in training to to what you're seeing in, in friendly games especially when they are played especially these early ones at a, at a slow pace but yeah, I think it is. Of the young players, I think Ahmad's the one that's that's closest to the first team and that if he has a good pre-season, he's the one that's going to be going to be in with a chance of making a real breakthrough. Yeah, you would certainly think so. He's certainly the most likely candidate to force his way in from the younger pool of players. But, you know, as we saw last year, you mentioned Iqbal there, Martial Sancho had brilliant pre-seasons, but obviously the season didn't work out very well for them. So nothing can be nothing can be taken for granted if things do go well. But obviously we will see over the coming weeks how he adapts to potentially life in the first team squad. But that does mark the end of this episode of the Manchester is Red podcast. A big thank you to both Samuel and Ty for joining me this Monday lunchtime. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and would like to watch it as well, we are now on YouTube. Just search Manchester is Red and you can subscribe to the channel there. We are also now launched a brand new app, the Man United MEN Pro app, which you can access via the App Store at £2.99 a month or £20 for the year, where you can read all of our United content ad-free. So do go and check that out as well. So as ever, we'll be back later in the week to discuss the latest United news and reflect on the friendly with Leeds and look ahead to Ty and Samuel's trip to the States next week as well. Have a good week and we'll catch you again very, very soon. Very, very soon.